Welcome to Spike's Podcast, where we reflect on the joy of running amidst the joy of life. Well, it is Sunday, 27th of December, 2015. It's been ages since I've recorded, and I could come up with all sorts of stories and excuses, and um, there is no excuse. I've simply uh, allowed podcasting to slip down the list of activities that have dominated my life and um, I'm sorry folks that's that's how it's happened so there's no point in going on about that let's just carry on with this particular episode Um, and to begin with uh, I've got a recording from my friend Tim Cleary um, over in the US and um, Tim is really commenting on my comment in my previous podcast which you may struggle to remember when I was talking about being in the autumn of my running life and uh, Tim responded to that and um, I'll let you hear his response first before I make any further comment. Uh, I would just say that um, Tim's recording is very quiet. Um, I have tried to up the gain as much as possible, but you might struggle just a little bit to hear every word. I apologise for that. Okay, folks, over to Tim. Hey, Peter. This is Tim Cleary. Just finished listening to your latest episode of Spikes and really enjoyed it. The focus on finding joy uh, in everything is it, just a something that we undervalue and something that most of us don't look for. We always look for all the challenges, all the things, but you know, every day there is something else that uh, just makes you smile. And I think if we were, if more people would focus on that, uh, you know. Things would be a lot better in the world. So, thank you for that. You know, it starts, like you said, find joy and run, and I find it every time I go out running, I enjoy it. But uh, extending that to what we can do with our lives to the joy we can find it. Next thing I want to say, I don't think you're in the autumn of your running career. So, based on the, the pace, you can still run. You, you're running. You run a lot faster than I do. You're a couple years older, so I'm thinking, holy moly, you're faster than you're faster than people half your age. You're faster than all, all of us your age. So, so you may not be as fast as you used to be. You know, the joy is you're, you've got a, a talent and skill that still puts you up in the probably the top 25% of all runners and you're a heck of a lot uh, more experienced than all of them so hey that's something to really be joyful about we're still out here running when most of our peers aren't even thinking about it so yeah I take a, I take a lot of joy from that I certainly do but, hey, and, and the last thing um, by the time you listen to this you all priority uh, seeing the oncologist, uh, just continue to pray for Gina. I hope that, uh, well, I, I know you all will get through it and you'll work through it. So I just wish, wish the best uh, and uh, we'll continue to, to think about you all. So that's all I've got. Again, 
best to all, both of you, and uh, I look forward to hearing uh, what you have to say. So, yeah. Joy to both of you all. Talk to you soon. Bye. Tim, thanks so much for um, sending me that, that clip and, um, and just offering your thoughts and comments, uh, particularly about the joy of life. Um, just firstly, I think I want to respond to, um, to my thought about being in the autumn of my, my running career, my running life, if you will. Um, I don't see that as necessarily being a bad statement um, or a bad thought um, in that I very much believe in, in, in a natural cycle of things. And, um, you know, I, I was very late flowering as a runner. So, you know, I was very um, loath to run as a young person. And then my spring came, you know, with my late teenage years, I guess. Um, and then I had a very good and long, long summer. And it was, a, it was a great time. And now, you know, I think the point for me is that, yes, yes, my, I'm still pleased with my comparative pace. Um, it's just that it's that much slower than it used to be. Now, I know that in the great scheme of things, that doesn't matter a heapeth. Um, but it's just a way of, if I say I'm the autumn of my running career, it characterizes it for myself without, without being down on myself either. You know, I don't, um, I don't feel bad about it in any sense. You know, at some point I will be in the winter of my running career and, you know, maybe I'll only better manage a little bit of running occasionally. But, um, but for now, you know, I'm still able to run pretty much when I want, um, uh, distances are are shorter than they used to be but I, you know there's no point in in pushing myself at a distance or indeed a pace that's going to injure me so um so I'm happy with where I am I'm also hugely grateful for your kind thoughts about Gina and and others have expressed similar thoughts let's um let's update you with where we are with Gina's treatment and progress um, so when I spoke last time we were about to see the oncologist and Gina opted to go for one course of chemotherapy to see how that worked out for her. I think by her own admission she um, she didn't enter into it with great enthusiasm. Um, I think not least because the, the potential gain, the benefit of the chemotherapy was very marginal. Um, you know, a very, very small percentage in her survival rate. So um, she went for the first round and everybody was very kind and, and made it as uh, straightforward as they could, but she really did not um, take well to the experience of it. Um, she found it uh, physically disconcerting, mentally very disconcerting. Um, and I think that really worried her. You know, the, Gina is, um, uh, I think I would, would say she's, she's proud of her intellect um, and it, it very much characterises her as a person. And the thought that that was being threatened um, was a big worry for her. And, um, and I tried very hard not to influence her decision-making. I wanted to support whatever decision she came to, but I tried not to to make overall influence on what she decided um, and in the end she said that, you know one round that's I've given it a go I'm, I'm not prepared to do any more and the oncologist was entirely understanding and um, said that's fine and um, fairly quickly then moved on to both hormone treatment and now radiotherapy um, she's had 
three sessions with the radiotherapy before Christmas. Now taking a break over the Christmas period and on Tuesday she'll be back in again for the 12 other radiotherapy sessions that she has to have. Um, far less threatened by that, you know, the, um, the potential side effects are pretty small by comparison. I'm not saying you'd leap to do it, but um, it's it's pretty manageable. As of yet, throughout the whole course of her, her illness, she has only ever felt unwell due to the chemotherapy. Um, and, you know, we're looking forward to um, to her full recovery and and everything going well. She's, in fact, suffered more over Christmas with a very nasty um, uh, cough that settled on her chest. I think, you know, with the chemotherapy reduced her, reduced her immune uh, protection and, um, and sadly this cough has really got a grip on her. But, um, you know, we think uh, that's, that's easing. She still continues to exercise every day that she can and, uh, and keep active. Um, so, yeah, thanks for all your kind thoughts. For those who've, um, who've wished to pray for us, thank you for that. We, we understand your thinking and, and are grateful for your thought on that. Um, yeah, life throws things at us. We cope with them as well as we can within our own capability. Gina is, is extraordinarily capable and, and she's coping really well. Um, okay, so that's the update there. Let me then um, go on to another submission that's been sat in the in-tray for a long time, and great apologies to honest Jim Harris for this. Um, Jim dabbled with the ultra-distance um, earlier this year and very kindly submitted a lovely long report on, on his experience, and... Um, I can do no better than to introduce that now and uh, invite you to listen to Jim's experience. Hello Peter and all the Spikes listeners, James here, aka Honest Jim of a race report for my ultra, the Equinox 24-hour run. First of all, please accept my apologies for not recording a report and getting to it uh, straight away. I've attempted to record four or five times now with um, and canned all attempts. This run has taken me a while to recover from physically and mentally. Some of you may remember what my A goal was to run 100 miles. Well, that would require me to run 16 laps of the 10k course, a tricky course of mixed terrain with a fair amount of elevation. Still, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Equinox event is held in and around the beautiful grounds of Belvoir Castle in Leicestershire. I was heading up to the event on the Friday with my wife, Ali, who had lovingly volunteered to help me put my tent up, although that's where her volunteering ended. I had two friends also running, Dean, an old colleague who have a friendly rivalry, rivalry with running events, his fiance, Fiona, and Steve, a swim fitness coach uh, my, friend, my wife works with. Ali and I eventually found the place and met Dean, who had a wonderful spot in the solo runner tenting area right next to the course. The way the Equinox race works is that you run from 12 noon Saturday to 12 noon Sunday. You can run as many laps as you wish with as many stops, rest breaks. Um, it's totally up to the individual. It's self-supported. There's two water tables spread around the course, but the rest is up to you. Apart from the 160 solo runners, there were large amounts of teams running uh, the event as a relay. 
They would prove to be great motivators to all the solo runners over the 24-hour period. Dean and Steve's girlfriend were entered in the 10k race, which started at the same time as the 24-hour race, and then assumed the supportive stroke helper roles to their fellas. I'd be on my own as my wife had to work on the Saturday um, afternoon and look after my two children Saturday night. Next year, we plan to make more of a family affair of the, of, the, of the race. The Equinox event has a great family feel to it. Not so much a big corporate money-making venture, which is becoming all too common with our running, running world. The race directors, Johnny and Nicole, and, and Nicole uh, no, Johnny and Laura Nicole, sorry, were brilliant and so easy to contact via the Equinox Facebook page, where no question was too stupid to ask, and they'd usually be incredibly quick, thorough, and friendly in doing so. On the evening before the race, four or five food vans set up their offerings of fish and chips, homemade burgers, stone-baked pizzas, and jacket potatoes. There was also a double-decker bus which had been converted into a bar. This race certainly has the feel of a festival. Lots of people also had their entire families and support groups camping with them as included in the entry price, is two nights free camping. There was a large marquee a band played in the evening before, but a bit embarrassingly, they were overshadowed by the England playing their first game in the Rugby World Cup. The race directors all set up a large TV screen, which the rugby fan, to the rugby fans' delight. I decided to take my large family four-man tent, even though I was camping alone on the Friday night, and not intending on using it at all on the Saturday night. My rooms were, my reasons were simple, that I'd be able to set up all my kit in the spare bedroom quarters and have a um, seat set up in the living quarters, with food on one side of it and medical kit the other. I was expecting to do a foot maintenance at the very least. Saturday morning. Following my usual amount of sleep before a race, almost nothing, I was relieved when it was time to get up. I had a decent breakfast, sausage bath and beans, washed down with a large cup of tea. My parents were bringing my children to watch the first part of the race, and my son was entered into the kids' race, which was approximately one mile of, uh, around the camp. Free to enter uh, for all the children, with a medal at the end. This race has it all. My parents and excited kids arrived. I gave my seven-year-old lad some rubbish advice. I told him to go out easy, watch his pace, and not sprint. My boy Danny, although only seven, has a decent park run time, uh, which is 5k PB, of around 25 minutes. Very good for his age. But he totally listened to my rubbish advice of go out slow. He set off slower than, my, than most of the 24-hour runners would. <laughs> Next year, I'll tell him to sprint. My lad finished looking a bit too fresh, rubbish coach, but happy. He received his medal, so he was well pleased. I decided to leave my race pack stroke hydration vest off for the first four laps. Why carry the extra weight? I wouldn't need too much. Um, I did, however, carry a handheld water bottle as it was and would be all day a hot one. Temps were in the early 20s, which is early 70s for all you Yanks. Pretty hot for this time of the year. Indian summer, I think they call it. 
The 10k racers and teams set off at a sprint, whilst the 24-hour solo runners set off at a more leisurely pace. I, as usual, went a tad fast. Nothing silly, but I was certainly at the faster end of the spectrum of my intended race pace. Around 10-minute miling, I found myself running next to last year's uh, female winner, Jaden, who I'd been chatting to online. I introduced myself and planned on my first lap to gain as much useful tactics from her as possible. The course, as I said, is very scenic and has some great hills, but it's split 50-50 with road and off-road, making, making shoe choices pretty tough. I'd gone with Hoka Road shoes as the course was dry with the option maybe of changing to off-road hokers for the night time and with, because of the heavy dew on the grass. There were two main hills of which I walked from the start and one awful steep off-road downhill, which of course, because I'm a plonker, I ran for the first 70 or 80k. I won't do that next year. Talk about smash your quads up. My first four or five laps went very easily, chatting to so many different solo runners. I can honestly say I've never run in a friendlier race, and it was lovely to have my kids and parents there for that period. I stopped each lap to top up my bottles and high-five my kids. My plan was taking shape. Run the first 100k within 12 hours, walk a good part of the night, and run again with the sun coming up. Easily said. What hit me was how early it got dark. I guess that's why it's called the Equinox Race. Equinox Race. 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. With it getting dark around 6pm, my plan would, would slip and I'd hit my 100k target around an hour late, around 1am. We were sharing part of the estate with an English stroke Indian wedding with a thumping disco till about 2am. This took our minds off our painful legs for a while on certain part of the course where you could hear it. It's only a small part of the course, but it, it was certainly a distraction. It was pretty good until someone who thought they could play the saxophone murdered our eardrums most of the, um, and most of the tunes he attempted to play. I read a comment posted later on about the sounds of the Friday night pre-race compared to the race night Saturday night sounds. Friday night, peaceful birdsong, the odd hoot from an owl and gentle snoring compared to the tent zips, the Saturday night being frantically flung, flung upwards, people tripping over guy ropes, heavy snoring, and best yet, a woman's voice. Jeff, Jeff, it's your lap, yanked Zip up. Jeff, it's your blimmin' lap. Oops, sorry, uh, wrong tent. Brilliant. The night atmosphere was excellent. I put my race number um, on, my race, on a race belt, which I now turned around and wore it on my back. Two reasons. The faster runners in teams would see that I was a solo runner and liable to be a bit slower. Plus, the amount of encouragement they gave you as their head torch illuminated your number and the printed word solo was incredible. It was the night time that a few, area, uh, few errors uh, I made made themselves shown. Most of my food choices were so dry. Lots of chia products and naked bars, but also brown bread rolls with turkey and cheese in them. 
Some of these rolls were just impossible to get down my throat. I did have some salt tablets and noon to mix with my water, but what I'd have done for a fr some fruit, jelly or soup, and I'd have murdered for a cup of tea. My plan was to do quick stops, grab what I required and eat on the run, but my mind was getting increasingly fuzzy. On one pit stop, I struggled with taking sh shoes off, treating and taping three blisters, putting new waterproof socks on, changing head torch batteries, getting extra warm layers on, gloves, hat, buff, vaselining a certain area. I won't tell you, I won't go into more about that. Taking salt pills, eating and remembering to take iPod out with me. I think I re-entered the tent four or five times on one occasion, constantly forgetting things. The importance of crew. Although there were, were times at night, although there were times at night, I think if my wife was crewing me, I'm not sure she'd have let me actually leave the tent again. I was in a bit of a state. Physically, I fell apart a lot quicker than I did mentally. Mentally, I had much more to give. My snowy, slowest nighttime lap was, a, um, was around this time. I couldn't break two hours for each lap. I know that sounds awful, but the terrain was tricky. The downhill section in particular was incredibly painful. My feet, my foot and blisters made for heavy going. Calf pain, left hamstring really dodgy. Knees, normal, rubbish. Quads, awful. Hips, grating. And my poor ass cheek, <laughs> raw from chafing. I was walking like John Wayne with piles, but still I pushed on. My nutrition strategy, plan B, came into force. Drink as much coke as possible. I don't usually touch this stuff, so the caffeine and sugar hit hard. It didn't speed me up, but kept me going in a mad, dynamic way. Dynamic way? Yeah. Sorry about that word. I met some truly great people who helped me get through the night. Most of them. Most of which I've got as friends now on Facebook. I'm looking forward to seeing them again at next year's race. Anyway... The relief when dawn starts to break was immense. It awakened my legs slightly and now I started to work out the maths on what I needed to do to get my 16 laps, give me 160k or 100 miles. My slowest laps had dented the aim considerably. However, as long as I started, as I started my last lap before 12 noon, I'd be allowed to start it and obviously finish it. This is where I put the final nail in my coffin. With the sun rising, as well as the camp rising, the cheering and support increased. My caffeine and sugar-loaded brain went into hyperdrive and I started running fast, really fast. Why? I have no idea. I'd never keep it up. This pace, my mind went a bit crazy. I was overtaking relay runners. Complete madness. I got around to my camp again, shouted to Dean who'd pulled out around 100k mark. I needed him to do some maths for me. 6.2 times 15. Would that be enough? My brain just wasn't working. My 14th lap, 140k, which would be my last lap, was a sufferfest. My hips and quads were shot. Two lovely ladies talked to me around that 10, uh, 10k last lap. They were warming down after three laps in a relay team. I was surviving. I crossed the line in 22 hours. Finished. 88.2 miles done. 
Johnny, the race director, said his catchphrase, one more lap? I said, no thanks. Shook his hand and collapsed into his arms. I was finished. Whilst the 16 laps or 100 miles was still a hope, I battled on. Once I knew the best I could do was 15 laps, which would have been 94 miles, my will melted. All the pain and stiffness I'd been trying to ignore flooded my body. What an amazing race. I can't recommend it enough. The runners, supporters, volunteers, race directors were brilliant. There was also a crew of photographers there 24 hours. And get this, all the photos were included in the race price, which was around £70, which includes two nights camping and a medal and a technical T-shirt. I don't usually repeat races. There were just so many around. However, how could I not do this one again? I will be back, leaner and keener. With a few lessons learned, I've no regrets. I gave it 100%. Next time, we'll see what happens. Until then, Peter and everyone, shuffle with joy. Jim, thanks so much for that brilliant uh, report. And it reminds me of, of my own days of ultra running. Um, yeah, there so much happens over the time period of, of an ultra run. There's so much um, physical change and, and mental challenge that uh, you have to get through. Um, and I'm delighted in remembering things like, you know, you couldn't do simple maths anymore and, um, and other such aspects of what it feels like when you're going through the night and, and, and pushing yourself hard. Sounded like a great event and um, you know, I sit here now, I think, oh, I'd love to do that. Don't know whether it's, um, it's really in the legs these days to do ultra runs anymore. Um, indeed, this morning, you know, I was, um, I was out this morning I did six and a half miles, just fractionally over six and a half miles. And uh, as I got to the end, I thought, oh, I've only got to do that again for a half marathon. And um, I'd have to tell you, I don't think I could have um, got very far on the second lap today. But but then, you know, I've not been putting in much distance lately, so um, that's fine. And indeed, you know, I was, um, I suppose, going back to my response to Tim Cleary's um, uh, clip that he sent in about being in the autumn of my running um you have to be very careful i mean i said i'm i'm content with that thought that in the in the cycle of my running life this is the autumnal period but you know for a while i was um just recently i found my pace has dropped even slower um and and i was just dialing things back a bit but then I was on the treadmill and I thought, well, I'll just try and push the pace up just a little bit and, and actually found it was okay. And then uh, I happened to friend uh, another colleague on Daily Mile and this is a person of a, a similar vintage to myself and he too likes, um, likes to do lots of data recording from treadmill sessions, you know, and, uh, and reflect on what happens. And I thought, oh, that's... Uh, Interesting. I noticed a couple of his paces were very swift, really, and I thought, oh, well, he's still banging it out. I wonder if I could just um, just get my pace up a little bit further, you know. And indeed, my pace has improved over the last couple of weeks, just with a few treadmill runs. Uh, so, it's it, the danger is, I think, that in your head you can uh, pretty readily convince yourself that things are happening, changes are irreversible, or whatever. And um, sometimes you just need to challenge that thinking and, and actually push yourself a little bit. 
you've got to be cautious because I don't think you know I couldn't sprint very far these days um, I don't think I could go out tomorrow and run a very long distance but you know six and a half miles this morning that's longer than I've run for a, 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 about a month now so um, you know it's putting some mileage up again and I think if one just manages with a little bit of care then these improvements can be made again so yep I'm, I'm not forecasting anything I'm not saying that I'm going to achieve X, Y or Z I'm simply saying that um, as I hope we all do that I, I run with joy I take every every run that I complete as a blessing um, and and the feeling of delight in exercise is still with me and still very strong I do recall um, you know, good old friend Kevin Gwynn who um, who edits uh, the Extra Mile podcast a great proponent of um run walk run and uh, I know Kevin in the past has tried to encourage me to to adopt that technique and I did say to him some time ago now that when I turned 60 I would probably um probably use that technique more I have tried it a couple of times but you know I still I still find my own personal preference is that I like to just run the whole distance um it might be slower steadier these days than it was but I still find psychologically that stepping down to a walk pace quite difficult now the, the, the bizarre thing is that when um, when I have tried doing run walk run I find the walking elements I stride out pretty hard and actually then when I go back to the run again I push myself harder because they, oh, I've been walking so I must it must make up for that now I've got to run hard um, so I'm I don't think I'm quite in the right place yet I'm not the ideal candidate I fear for this uh, particular activity. Um, having said all that, I noted uh, on Facebook following uh, what was happening there that Krista has had a great trip to the US recently and um, and Krista ran in the Jeff Galloway half marathon with with friends and colleagues and um, oh, I'd have loved to have joined them. Um, uh, were it today, I'd probably have to be doing run, run, walk, running then to just get round it, I suspect. But um, it would have been lovely to to be there. Lovely to see Krista again, actually. I, I really enjoyed his company when he came to stay with us. Um, and I'd love to meet other friends face-to-face. -face. I think it's, um, it's great to have these friends via the internet, via podcasting, Facebook, Daily Mile, whatever. But it's so much richer to actually meet each other face-to-face. Um, a last thought really something that sprang out of a conversation this morning um, Gina and I both and I think I've probably mentioned the author Atul Gawande several times to you um, don't, have I mentioned his book his latest book which is entitled Being Mortal so I'll let me repeat that Being Mortal um, this is very much uh, his thoughts on treatment of others towards the end of life and what we would wish for ourselves and and really how that often sits at odds with what we what we um, uh, put in place for others and, and, and I'm facing exactly this challenge for myself at this stage I'm facing it for my father um, whose uh, health is deteriorating um, uh, dementia is is taking a hold 
Um, at the moment, he still lives alone in his own house. Um, he does have a carer coming in several days a week, and his brother-in-law, my uncle, is very good at popping around each day just to check how he is. My dad is, is as I've said before to you on this podcast, he's, he's a couple of hundred miles away from where I live, so I can't just pop around the corner, but I do try and get up to see him. Most months these days now, um, I, I pop up and we have some lunch and a chat. Um, but, you know, just last time I saw him in, in the earlier part of December, uh, I was broaching again the idea that he might have to enter care at some stage. And, um, and I know that this is about my own fears. It's For him, he wants to just live at home his own home that he knows and loves and it's the home that he and my mother bought together and uh, and it matters a lot to him you know he um he loves that place uh, you know he doesn't do anything he spends almost all day every day sitting in his chair watching some television smoking too much um but you know in his own world that's where he wants to be and of course, my fear, the fear of others around him, is that if, as he occasionally does, he steps out of the front door, the day will come where he steps out of the front door and won't know where he is or who he is or, uh, or what's happening. Um, and so when I broach the idea of care, um, residential care with him, uh, it's for my own sense of his well-being. Um, but he's, he's probably going to rail against it unless he becomes so unwell that he he can't really comprehend what's happening. Um, that's That will be some way off yet. Um, but anyway, Atul Gawande in his book, um, amongst other things, talks about how we place people in care and what that care would ideally be like if we could, if we could make it so. Um, he also, in the book, talks extensively about um, palliative care. And I, I think, you know, we're kind of a little bit fearful and squeamish about the notion of palliative care, the notion that we are caring somebody through the last elements of their life uh, as they move towards moves towards their death. And, um, and I think the thing with palliative care that, that we need to remember is not that it's about hastening death or indeed about um, making the passage to death inevitable, it, the whole premise really is about living the best life you can today. Um, so when someone is in palliative care, one day they might be able to eat quite well and laugh and maybe go to some location that is important to them and do something. Another day they might be so um, wearied and, and inappetent that they can't can't eat or drink or anything like that so you know the, the days will vary and um, palliative care is about maximizing everything that can possibly done be done to make each day special and um oh sorry i'm gonna have to pause just got a phone call coming in okay i'm back again um yeah sorry that's just gino's um traveling to drop somebody off at the airport and they've hit some traffic so just let me know what's happening there um yes yeah, so just to end this particular thought, Gina and I thought, well, actually, in a sense, we should live a palliative life, shouldn't we? We should make every day the best we can every day. Um, it's too easy to allow other things in life to overwhelm us. So, so that's really my closing thought for today, is um, 
is don't forget to make the very best, the very most out of everything that we possibly can. And in doing that, I hope that you'll run and live with joy. There's a world full of place.